Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. And today I'm going to go ahead and go first. And I'm going to talk about where do helium balloons go, particularly when they are released. So it's still not terribly uncommon to have a celebratory balloon release. There was actually a lot of back and forth on Twitter about one that was done recently. And uh, there are also a lot of escaped balloons from parties and weddings, different celebrations. I mean, there are probably even like car dealerships and stuff that have accidentally released helium balloons. So what happens to them? Obviously, they float away because helium is lighter than the atmospheric atoms and elements that we are uh, surrounded by. Just to quickly go over what is in Earth's atmosphere, it is 78% nitrogen, 18% oxygen, some percent of CO2 that's changing, 3-ish percent, and then the remainder up to 100% is a bunch of other little stuff or smaller percentages of stuff. All of it's little stuff. It's all molecules of elements. Helium is lighter than nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, etc., it is the second lightest element after hydrogen. The balloons go up. Most things that come up tend to come back down. <laughs> now, how high do you think a helium balloon could get into the atmosphere? Just a guess. Uh, a long way. That's Very a, far. That's a good guess. Like two miles? I found several uh, sources that stated around 10 kilometers, which is around six miles. What? Yeah. So. What? That's pretty far up in the atmosphere. And the atmosphere at 10 kilometers is very different from the atmosphere at sea level or 600 feet above sea level, which is where we are right now, which is not even a kilometer above sea level. Mm -hmm. So not even close. The balloon, there's a few different thoughts about where balloons end up. The balloon industry as a whole tends to assume that the balloons are going to go up into the atmosphere they're going to get very cold. And this is assuming that the balloon is made out of something like latex or some other very expandable plastic. So they go up into the air. They get very cold. They expand because the helium inside expands and pushes out on the balloon. And then the balloon shatters into a bunch of tiny pieces. And then those tiny pieces fall back to Earth and they eventually decompose. I found one source that said that balloons... Latex balloons decompose roughly at the rate of oak leaves. I think that's a comparable decomposition. And oak leaves take years to decompose. What a strange metric. I know. It is a strange metric, but it's probably something that you'd have more information on than a lot of other small, flat materials, I guess. Like this, I, the scale is weird. Like In terms of an oak leaf, like things that decompose, it's like bones... Are like 15 oak leaves or like, is it like, an, <laughs> is it like an oak leaf scale? I don't understand that. I don't think so, but it should be. Okay. How, how many, how many generations worth of oak leaves is this going to take? <laughs> it's a very Celtic, ancient right. Celtic metric. <laughs> there are an awful lot of assumptions in that story that I just told. Mm -hmm. One of the assumptions is there's nothing else attached to the balloons. A lot of balloon releases involve strings. They don't involve them as much anymore, 
but they used to. And a lot of accidental balloon releases involve strings. And they can also involve weights if the heel, if the weight isn't heavy enough to actually hold down the balloon or the balloon arrangement. So those strings do not decompose at the same rate as one generation of oak leaves. So <laughs> they can become tangled in trees. They can become tangled in sea life. They can become, I believe there has been at least one instance of a farmer in the UK successfully suing the people responsible for a balloon release because one of his bulls ate a balloon with a string and died. Oh, poor bull. Yeah. And there was also a horse somewhere in the UK that died directly because of a helium balloon landing in their pasture. I didn't know. There were no more details, so I don't know why the balloon caused the horse's death, but there were enough causative details for there to be compensation for the owner of the horse. The strings also break down into microplastics and they become part of the sort of microplastic pollution in the general global environment. And they become part of oceanic plastic waste. Oceanic plastic waste is primarily actually fishing nets and fishing line. But about, I don't know, something like 51% of it is not fishing related. And that includes things like, you know, the fishing lines are strings. They're plastic strings. Balloon strings are strings, plastic strings. Oh, there was also one balloon release where people attach, were encouraged to attach postcards to a single balloon. So each person got a single balloon with a postcard. And then they released the balloons. And as the balloons landed back on Earth, wherever they landed, the person that found it was supposed to mail the postcard back in. <laughs> and then whoever's balloon made it the furthest away from the balloon release won, which... That's really a lot of hoping that a lot of different things happen. Like somebody finds the balloon with the postcard. Somebody bothers to mail it in. It doesn't just go out into the ocean. I'm just imagining like a sea turtle finding the postcard and sending hate mail to like whoever. <laughs> Please stop releasing balloons. Love sea turtle. <laughs> <laughs> balloons can also cause damage to human infrastructure. And I've talked a lot about latex balloons. I'll briefly talk about mylar balloons because mylar balloons, the material mylar and other metallic plastics that are used does not stretch like latex does. So they use less helium, but they can still float because they don't need to be stretched out by the helium. And so they're not actually under as much pressure. But one thing they do is they, when they get entangled into power lines, they short circuit the power lines. <laughs> and they cause power outages. Oh, that's not good. Apparently several times a year in Glendale, Arizona, balloons will cause power outages. Like that's a specific ongoing issue in certain parts in of the Glendale, world. In Glendale, Arizona. So some mad balloon releaser has all the Mylar balloons. I guess. <laughs> so Mylar balloons are electrically unsafe particularly if you're holding a string of a mylar balloon and you're near a power line and it gets tangled that's not good <laughs> that's not good oh no it's not safe it's not safe for animals to be around them when yeah and power lines so there's a lot of difficulties with mylar balloons causing human infrastructure issues as a side note i have the same mylar balloon i got for my birthday that's awesome sarah's birthday floating. is in january yeah 
It's still floating in my office. And I'll explain why. Uh, that's actually a great, it's a great time to explain okay, why. Okay, cool. So we'll talk about helium and balloons a little bit because this is a good segue into what actually happens to balloons versus they go up in the atmosphere, they explode into tiny pieces, they fall back to earth, it's no problem. Latex balloons versus mylar balloons. Mylar balloons, as I said, don't stretch. They're a different material than a latex balloon. And they're, it makes a lot of sense to use a mylar balloon also because people have hideous allergic reactions to latex, like anaphylactic. Mm. So it can get really bad. Latex balloons have a stretchy material. That's, that's what they're made out of. And the little helium atoms, as they're bumping around inside the balloon as gas, actually sometimes bump their way between the latex atoms and bump their way out. Because helium is so small atomically in comparison to most other elements. They can actually even like bump their way out of the knot at the bottom of the balloon. Mm -hmm. So that happens fairly quickly because they're moving around a lot. Gases, the molecules are very, we'll call them excited and they move around quite a bit. They escape fairly quickly. Mylar is more dense. The molecules are closer together than they are in a latex balloon. So it's harder for the helium to escape. Mylar balloons do eventually deflate, but it can take much more time. That's kind of a problem in that mylar balloons will float for a longer amount of time and also don't break down as quickly as, say, a latex balloon, a.k.a. one generation of oak leaves worth of decomposition. <laughs> but latex balloons, because they deflate a little faster... You know, you can't just assume that they're going to go up 10 kilometers, freeze, shatter, explode, fall. They are much more subject to weather patterns and weather behavior. And they also often, because they come back down to earth a lot of times, either partially deflated or entirely deflated, but in one piece, they end up, but they're still a lightweight piece of, we'll call it latex rubber. It's not quite the rubber, I don't know, latex. They get washed into waterways. And so it's very common for livestock to eat latex balloons, for sea birds to eat latex balloons, for sea turtles to eat latex balloons. And that's not healthy. They're, I mean, they're a choking hazard. You're supposed to keep them away from small children. And small children tend to be larger than a lot of seabirds and sea turtles. Not all of them. Because have you ever seen a picture of an albatross? Yeah, they're enormous. They're so big mm -hmm. and so glamorous looking. <laughs> glamorous. Yeah, they have glamorous like glamorous albatross. They have like eyeliner <laughs> feathers. They're very glamorous birds. Oh, dude, I so need to make a graphic of a glamorous albatross now. That would be great. <laughs> but you know, if you think of like a little teeny plover or whatever, <clears throat> a seabird. What's a plover? They're little, little bitty, the ones with the really long, stilty legs. Oh. I like that. Yeah. Clover. Yeah, and little sandpipers hey, and stuff. Clover. So cute. <laughs> I like seabirds. They eat balloons. And they don't know any better. They don't know what a balloon is. They no, they don't, don't have do lips, it. so they can't blow them up. Don't do it, Mr. Albatross. The deflatability of latex balloons and the ability for helium to escape is actually a contributor to them not behaving the way that would be optimal for environmental disposal. Balloons can also deflate just enough in the atmosphere to reach equilibrium where they neither rise nor fall 
So they are just floating at the same distance from Earth, just kind of bobbing around. And also sensibly, because they can go up six-ish miles, 10 kilometers, they can cause real issues for planes, for air traffic in general. Really? Yeah. It's not common for them to cause, say, crashes, but a plane's got to go around a big balloon release if they get high enough. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Uh, One of the most famous balloon disasters from a balloon release, a helium balloon release, happened in Cleveland, Ohio in 1986. So there was a massive balloon release. And the weather pattern above Cleveland sent every single one of those balloons back down to Earth pretty quick. Oh, no. So they caused traffic accidents. They got tangled all over the city. They actually caused two deaths on Lake Erie. What? Two Sailors on Lake Erie died because of the balloons on Lake Erie. <laughs> no, that's terrible. Yeah. One of the one of the wives of the sailors actually successfully sued for uh, sort of recompense for the loss. And they settled out of court. But How many flipping balloons did they release? It was a, an enormous amount. It was a wow. ridiculous amount. So there are laws about releasing balloons in a lot of places. There are a lot of laws in the U.K., Apparently, this was like a real popular, it's a real popular activity in the UK, I guess. Hmm. But there are a lot of laws in the UK. There's some laws in regions of the US. There's no overarching law. It's understood both that this can cause a lot of problems for municipalities in terms of traffic snares and having to pay people because of the deaths of their animals or loved ones and just mess, just pollution. Part of why I, uh, I wanted to do this topic was because there was recently a huge balloon release and there was almost nothing but negative reactions to it because people are so sick of just like releasing garbage into the world, (laughs) particularly single use plastics. So I thought that was very interesting. And there are a lot of people are like, Oh, you just hate fun. It's like, well, sometimes fun is really messy in a way that's negative. But you can also release like butter, native butterflies. I mean, that's a thing you can do. That happens sometimes. I was looking for alternatives. Um, some uh, Wikipedia suggested a twenty-one gun salute, which I don't think is a good. <laughs> I don't think it's a good alternative personally. Uh, no. Unless it's ca- like blanks or caps, like cap gun twenty-one gun salute. That's festivish. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fireworks are. They can be messy, but they're not quite as messy at a distance and they're not little bits of plastic exploding everywhere well and yeah they're also not going to accidentally be released in the atmosphere and Mm -hmm. end up 50 miles away that's true make sure that you understand your local firework laws though because a lot of projectile fireworks aren't allowed maybe a little sparkler (laughs) it's a a sparkler waving party uh bubbles are a good option and bubbles are really kind of charming Flags and banners. I couldn't find, I even asked on Twitter and nobody responded. <laughs> uh, just alternative ideas for balloons, things like birthday parties, particularly because helium is disappearing. It, it, the U.S. helium reserve is like 30% of the world's helium. And it was estimated that it would be depleted by 2018. And it's 2019. And I don't know how much helium there is in the reserve. Who knows that if they're going to ever release the information of us having actually run out of helium. What if the helium balloon that I have in my office is like the last helium? 
You got to sell it on eBay. <laughs> to the government. To the government. At the last helium, the troops show up at my house. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's something worth thinking about simply because it, it we're going to need an alternative to balloons if we want to decorate. Oh, and some people do those flaming lanterns. Yeah, so they do paper lanterns instead of a candle at the bottom. And they're a wire frame. And those do not go as far as balloons, unless the balloons get immediately tangled or like Cleveland. I mean, just the word flaming and release is like, doesn't sound like a great idea. They definitely start fires. <laughs> not every time there's a release, but some of the time. And fire can move very far. And especially depending on where you live. Like if you're in Australia. Don't do it. I, I'm not going to personally recommend it. I'm not going to tell you you can't. Australia might tell you you can't, but I'm not going to. California during the fire season probably will tell you you can't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and also they they tend to be made with wire frames, mm-hmm. which rust and animals can get to them. And they they take more than one oak leaf for the decomposition. <laughs> <laughs> Many generations of oak leaf. And you could probably scrap them, actually. <laughs> you probably could. You should. Instead of uh, letting them light the the landscape on fire, that would be a much better use. Mm-hmm. That's the reuse project. <laughs> Find out when there's a re- lantern release and go collect the spent lanterns so you can scrap <laughs> them. So yeah, that's where helium balloons go. They cause a lot of problems, basically, and are not the best. As long as you keep track of them. If you're keeping them in your house, that's fine. If you're keeping them on your porch, that's fine. It's the large-scale balloon releases and accidentally letting a big wad of balloons go uh, that can cause really pretty substantial ecological problems. Don't make Mr. Sea Turtle and Glamorous Albatross sad. Yeah. They're hungry and they don't really want to eat balloons. They look like tasty jelly beans to them. Yeah, they do. They look like tasty jelly beans to small children, too. Yeah, and admittedly, they look like that to me, too. Yeah, like giant tasty jelly beans. <laughs> so my topic is completely unrelated, which I find interesting and fascinating. Emily and I were having this thing where our, our, our topics seem to be themed, even though we never really told each other what we were doing. It's always just kind of a surprise. I'm going to talk about where feral children go. Oh, man, I'm so excited. (laughs) So history is full of stories and myths about feral children. Children, for whatever reason, were found or seen or rumored to have been cut off from civilization or socialization with other people. They were this way because of circumstance pushed on them by society and their parents in general or somehow got lost or ran away. There are a lot of purported cases of feral children, many of which are just believed to be stories or fabrications, but there are actually a few documented cases of feral children. So what happens to these kids? If you or someone you know might be a feral child, where do you go? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go straight to Wikipedia for the definition of feral children. I love Wikipedia. Thank you. Me too. A feral child, also called a wild child, is a human child who has lived isolated 
from human contact from a very young age and so has had little or no experience of human care, behavior, or human language. Human language is a big part of this human, this feral child thing. And I'll, I'll as they go into some of the cases, I'll, it'll be obvious. There are several confirmed cases and other speculative ones. There are actually a lot of speculative ones. Feral children may have experienced severe abuse or trauma, which is actually more common for the modern kids that we've confirmed, before being abandoned or running away. They are sometimes the subjects of folklore and legends, typically portrayed as having been raised by animals. So there, I, I ran into this topic because I fell into an internet hole about the children of Woolpit. And these kids were two kids that were found in like a pit in the 12th century in England. Yikes. Yeah, they, they were found in this pit and they had like this green, green skin, supposedly. They were a brother and sister. And like I said, they had green skin and eventually, um, the girl told the man who found them that they were from a race of underground people who had green skin just like them. They were called the green children of Woolpit because their skin was green, obviously. The children would only eat broad beans. Okay. <laughs> High in fiber, low in fat. And But eventually, they would eat regular food and their skin turned a normal color. The Boy died a little after um, they were found, but the girl went on to live a productive life, and her skin was a normal color, and she learned English. She supposedly married and held a job as a servant in her adult life. All right. Yeah. The story is now widely regarded as a myth, um, only because it seems to be a mixture of a couple different stories and myths about fairy children or stories that were made up about about children that happened to be in books and poems at the time. So feral children, there's a ton, 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 ton of stories about them. And it seems to fascinate people deeply. And of course, I'm one of those people. I, I find it interesting. And I think in part, it's because of our desire to understand our relationship to the wild and our places as humans in it. Like, we, we're trying to grasp, like where the wild ends and humans begin. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very common with people. Some of the notable feral children is Mowgli. And Mowgli's not real. Mowgli was made up by Rudyard Kipling. And Rudyard Kipling, during British colonial rule in India, he was a little kid. He's an English kid, and he was raised in India for a bit. His family moved to India, and he was raised by an Indian servant named Mita. He heard the stories and myths of India, and the, especially the stories about animals. And a lot of Indian myths have stories about talking animals and animals that kind of teach you a lesson. And these stories and experience of being raised in the two worlds deeply affected his writing later. And his story of Mowgli in the Jungle Book is pretty much based on his experiences being raised between the two worlds of being an English Raj child is what they were called, I guess, mm -hmm. and being raised by basically Indian servants. And eventually Rudyard was sent to an English boarding school and was separated from Mita, which is very, very sad time for him. So the story is fiction, and it's thought that it's like a duality of the two worlds of people, 
the wild and civilization civilization and his experiences of becoming from going a child to adulthood and having to separate from Mita. But Mowgli was raised by wolves, and it turns out being raised by wolves is a common story in India from the time, and it kind of fueled other stories around the time of kids being raised by wolves or found by wolves or raised by animals in the forest. So there's one documented case in the 1700s that we believe is probably real. There's another one in the 1800s, but I'm just going to go into Peter, the wild boy, for the for the older story. So Peter was found like in a wooded area in Germany, about 1724-ish. He was neglected and people later thought that he was raised by bears. I have no idea how you get raised by bears. Oh, uh, <laughs> lots of berries and scratching your butt on trees, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, why would a bear raise a kid? I don't really get that, but whatever. So when he was found, he couldn't speak. He ate like an animal and did not have any social graces. And because he didn't have any manners, like he, he couldn't talk, he didn't have any manners, he was kind of overall a pest in the village that the people who captured him took him to. He ends up being locked up. Poor little Peter. And then the townsfolk end up calling him Peter. And from the accounts, for a few months, he lived a pretty sad life until someone picked him out and tried to give him some social graces and, and teach him basically how not to be an animal. And about a year later, he's presented to King George the first in Hanover and kind of becomes King George's pet. Yikes. Um, yeah. More like a curiosity. The entire time Peter is regarded as a scientific curiosity because people at the time wanted to know what was innate and what was not in people. I mean, we still want to know this today. We kind of have an, an interesting relationship with understanding what our place in the wild is. So two years later... He's still regarded as a scientific curiosity. He studied pretty heavily by people at the time. He was still unable to speak, though he understood people really, really well. So they kind of tested his hearing, and he could hear perfectly. He understood when people talked to them, but he was not able to speak. And that turns out to be a pretty common theme throughout for quote-unquote feral children. And at the time, uh, they thought this proved that he was a subspecies of human because at the time they thought speech was innate in humans and it was, a, it was an ability given to them by God and they thought that the fact that he couldn't speak meant that he was a subspecies of humans called Homo ferus. So they actually thought that he was like a wild ancestor of ours or a wild cousin of ours that just happened to live in the woods. Ferris like iron? Ferris like feral. Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like he, Effie... he is Iron Man. <laughs> He's Iron Man. So where did Peter the wild boy go? They got, the scientists in King George got kind of tired of him. Like he was no longer interesting because he never did the appropriate tricks. I don't know. So the farmers, uh, he was sent to live on a farm in England. The farmers received money every year to look after him, and he's allowed to wander around and do whatever he likes. 
by this time he has manners. He knows how to act around people, but he still is not speaking. He lived for 60 years on the farm and mostly just wanted to be left alone and didn't really bond with anybody else. Like he just really wanted to be outside. He just wanted to be outside and hang out with animals, which is also a common theme in feral children. He was always regarded as a curiosity um, all his life, and he it was thought he died in his 70s on the farm, just kind of hanging out, being Peter the Wild Boy. And then we'll get to, we're going to get to more modern times. There's a very famous case that is now regarded as uh, probably made up or at least exaggerated. But in the 1930s, supposedly... An Anglo- Anglican priest was witness to two little girls being captured in a pack of wool, uh, a wolf den. And so they shot the mama wolf and they took the little girls and the girls did not speak and they walked on all fours. And the Anglican priest said that they went to go live in his, or- his orphanage and he kind of explained their behavior And then as soon as they were supposed to go on this tour and see scientists, they died. The the little girls were described as not getting along with humans and only preferred the company of animals. They didn't want to be around people. They ate like animals. They didn't talk. They walked on all fours. And because he, it was kind of sketchy, the priest was later doubted and they thought maybe he made it up um, to get donations for his orphanage. Maybe. They're, that's the end of the story of Amala Kamala, and they're pretty much regarded as a case of wild children and may or may not have existed. We don't know. Then there's the monkey boy of Uganda, and his story is actually my favorite story because it's happy. <laughs> it's actually a happy story. His name is John Sesabunya. He lived alone in the wild. They think that he was lost maybe when he was around four uh when he was able to finally talk later he said that he witnessed his father killing his mother and then ran away Mm. yeah so he fled into the forest and lived there for years when he was found they thought he was like six to ten years old but it was really hard to tell because he didn't know yeah yeah and between that age if you're small nobody knows right exactly he uh, lived with he lived with a band of vervet monkeys, and this is actually they think this is true because he says it's true. He said he said that they shared their food with him and they protected him and they kept all kinds of critters and predators away from him. Now there's doubts as to whether vervet monkeys would actually share food with a human. What they think happened was probably. They dropped food and allowed him to eat it, and he kind of hung around them. And if predators came nearby, they would scare them away for the good of the entire band instead of just a little boy. But when you're a little kid and you're living around monkeys and they're nice to you, I mean, obviously it seems like they're helping you. Well, and who knows what his home life was like prior to hanging out with the monkeys. Right. Since the last moments at home were watching his mother get murdered by exactly. his father. So exactly. maybe they were really nice comparatively. So when he was brought in, he was adopted and cared for by an early teacher of his. She ended up naming him, I believe. She says when he was found, he was hairy and brown and unkempt and very scared of people. 
So she worked a very long time with him as as well as other people in the in the kind of orphanage uh, school that he ended up going to. He had learned to speak before he ran away. This is really important. He was old enough to speak, so eventually language came back to him. And so his language is not all that advanced, but he can talk and he can talk about his experiences. He was later able to tell people about his monkeys, about his monkey family. And um, he says they, they brought him food and protected him and would talk about the things that happened in the wild. He, where did he go? He's still alive. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's a member, he's, and he's a loved member of the community that adopted him. Oh, good. He's a Special Olympics marathon athlete. Yeah, and has represented his country a few times doing so. He has even traveled to England with a choir that he sings with. He still helps out his foster mother, the teacher that adopted him. Mm -hmm. He lives not too far from her. Um, He helps her out. He has cows. He loves his cows. He likes to hang out with his cows, which I said is a common common theme of feral people is they, they like to hang around animals. And but more often his story is a happy story. Unfortunately, a lot of Feral, and of course, John's beginnings are not so happy. He obviously had a broken home and ran away because of it. But more often, feral children seem to be the result of human neglect and abuse. And more modern cases, I think, are a testament to the adaptability of human beings and particularly of children. So the next one I have is Oksana Malaya. And there's another kid named e- Edict that I really didn't go into. Her, Oksana and, and Edict's story are, are similar, but I, I decided to talk about Oksana anyway. So Oksana is from the Ukraine in the 1980s, so relatively late recently. Her parents were alco- alcoholic, like horribly alcoholic. And they didn't want her, so they kept her outside with a dog. She stayed in the kennel with the dog and ate with the dog. Yeah. I mean, at least she had the dog, I guess. Yeah. I hope the dog was nice. Probably was. Very nice. Very, That's good. Yeah. The dog pretty much raised her. Oh. So she was discovered at the age of eight and put into state care and foster homes. She couldn't speak because she was like, from the time she was a baby to the time she was eight, she lived with a dog. Yeah. She could probably just speak dog. Yeah. She could not really speak and instead made noises like barks and whines and acted more like a dog. She like w- walked on all fours. Like, ate like a dog, barked and whined. And I saw a video of her barking, and she sounds just like a dog. Mm-hmm. It, it's unbelievable. She, uh, Where did Oksana go? She's still alive. Yeah. I guess that's good. She actually lives a few miles away from where she was neglected and abused. She has a pet dog. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that's she, nice. She works at a farm with animals, so she loves well, animals. There and you she go. She works at a farm. And she can speak about her uh, experiences and kind of lives in a group home for the mentally ill. So she's well cared for. She has a job working with animals and she's okay. Like she's okay now, but her, I can only imagine what her experiences were. It's just, it's very sad, but I'm glad she's okay now. And then we'll get to Jeannie. I'm familiar with the genie story. Yeah, so I'm not going to go too far into the genie story. If you want to read a horrible, sad story of a poor, feral child 
by all means, read the Wikipedia article. It is horrifying. There are also documentaries on YouTube you can watch for free. Yeah. So Jeannie's story is probably one of the saddest stories of child abuse and neglect I have ever read in my life. Jeannie was not raised by animals. She probably should have been raised by animals. They probably would have treated her better, but um, was instead a victim of intense neglect and abuse pretty much from the time she was born. Her father was mentally ill. He went completely off the rails, and her mother was mostly blind. For whatever reason, her father believed that she was mentally handicapped and told her mother and brother not to talk to or interact with her and threatened them and beat her if they interacted with her. So she's a baby. She's being beaten if anybody interacts with her. She's kept in a locked room and strapped to a toilet seat during the day and her bed at night. So Jeannie was discovered when her mother went to the disability office for benefits. The social workers at the time thought she was a mentally and physically disabled six-year-old. She was so small and malnourished, and it tipped them off something was wrong when they found out she was 13. Oh, my God. I forgot about how bad this was. Yeah, it's really horrible. So the state took her from her mother's custody, and from then, she was studied by researchers, psychologists, behavioral scientists, linguists. Numerous state grants were given to these people to study her and help her and help them figure out how they could help other children like her. She had a pretty intensely studied life after this. Over the years, Jeannie was raised in a couple of researchers' homes with occasional custody battles, like fierce custody battles between a couple of researchers. Jeannie was eventually returned to custody of her mother in the late 1970s. Why would you would give this woman custody of her again? I don't know. Um, I didn't know that part. Yeah. And then I guess from my understanding of reading it, her mother couldn't handle her. So she was shuttled off to foster homes again, where she experienced even more abuse and neglect. Good grief. Yeah. This poor woman. The researchers, because of her mother, were barred from contacting her. So imagine these people pulled her out of this horrible situation They were the only people she knew. She lived with a a researcher's family for four or five years and did really well there because she had a family caring for her. And then they're not allowed to talk to her anymore. She, When Jeannie started out, she was unable to speak. She was incontinent because she'd been strapped to a toilet. She hated being touched. She was terrified of dogs and cats. And because of that, they think that's because her dad would only make dog and cat noises at her. That's so weird. Yeah. And had the mental capacity, they thought, of a one-year-old when they found her. Mm -hmm. She made huge leaps and bounds when people were actually gave her attention and loved her and were patient with her and tried to do what was best for her. And she was eventually able to speak in a very limited way. Nothing wrong with her hearing. There was nothing wrong really with her brain, except that, and this goes into why people who are feral, feral children who are found from a young age, unlike John Sesabunia, when you learn to speak, you can he- you hear, from my understanding, you hear what the person says, and then it jumps over to another part of your brain, and that part of your brain tells your, your mouth, your speech centers, what to say in response. 
So people who are feral, they hear it, but the connection between hearing and responding is broken because they never got the chance to learn complicated human speech processes. So they can eventually learn how to speak a lot of the time, but it's just not as advanced or it's just a series of sounds or whatever, depending on what they're capable of. So she was eventually able to speak and have a life. Where did Jeannie go? Well, they someone hired a private investigator in the early 2000s to see if they could find her. And they found her. And she was in, she seemed to be happy. She would be in her 60s now. She's living in a private care facility for people with mental disabilities. That's all we know. Hopefully she's okay. It seems like she was happy living her life. Hopefully she's all right. I mean, at least she's not homeless. Yeah, I, that's what I would or worry. Or dead. That's what I would worry is that she was homeless. So my thoughts on this, and I wrote a few thoughts. Um, can wolves really raise human children? I find that unlikely. I also find that unlikely. <laughs> Full-grown humans really have nothing to worry about from wolves. Wolves generally tend to not want to be around people for very good reasons. But children... To a hungry wolf, probably looks like a snack or a meal. So I find it unlikely that wolves would raise a child, but nature's strange. You never know. Being raised by dogs like Oksana or Edik, probably more likely just because of our relationship with dogs. Dogs tend to be more open to human interaction, especially if the kid is feeding them or helping them get food. Hell yeah, they're going to help the kid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So there are phases in human development, and I wrote a little bit after I did more did more thinking and research on why people generally tend to have, when they're feral, tend to have speaking issues like I was saying earlier. So there are phases in human development where we don't learn, if we, if we don't learn language or are isolated for a time during this phase in early childhood, our speech ability is severely impaired or limited. It seems like you only have a very short window to learn speech and language correctly. And then after that, your brain is kind of, you have a little bit of brain damage. You're not mentally, you're not mentally repaired, but you have brain damage from it. Human language is not innate, but has to be learned. Speech is developed around the age of one to about six. At about six, our ability to speak is about 95% developed. So by the time you're six, your speech center is 95% developed. So-called feral children or children who are isolated have parts of the brain necessary to speak. It just has not developed correctly or developed differently. So if you're raised by dogs, it's likely you're going to make dog noises. We learn to speak by imitating others without people speaking to us. We won't develop. Stories of wild children who have been found are full of accounts of children making noises like monkeys, wolves, or whatever animal, animal they were purported to be quote-unquote raised by. So that's why Oksana made dog noises, why John made monkey noises and jumped around like a little monkey when they found him. And then eventually he was able to learn speech and they were both they were both able to kind of interact with other people. It obviously helped John that he learned how to speak beforehand, so his speech came back, and that's why he can talk a little bit more about what happened to him. 
So yeah, they, they usually feral children end up having to be cared for the rest of their lives in some kind of care home or people that will look after them because they just, they're different. They end yeah. up being different. Well, and they would probably go back to what they were raised doing, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but it's not going to lead to living very long, particularly, mm -hmm. you know, humans don't do great. We don't have nice fur and sharp teeth and no, we got thumbs. Yeah. We got, we got handy thumbs. <laughs> and culture is our major adaptation. So if you're not around people to learn cultural norms and mores, you're going to be at a big disadvantage when you're older. Huge. Yeah. Especially depending on how rigid a culture might be in terms of propriety. Mm -hmm. So if you want more information, there's two good documentaries. There's Wild Child. It was produced maybe in the 90s, early 2000s. And then there's another one called Feral Children or Wild Children or something like that. And it was made by National Geographic. Wikipedia is an awesome resource for this. There's a couple of books out about wild children. There are plenty of resources uh, out about wild children if you want to read about them. It's a fascinating topic and I think it fascinates a lot of people by all means. I'm, I, since I didn't go too far into Jeannie and you're more curious if you're curious about her by all means look her up her story is a really sad one but the stories of the researchers the main researchers that helped her are really interesting and the things that they learned have helped researchers and behavioral scientists afterwards figure out how to help other feral children or children from severe abuse and neglect cases so yeah check that out if you're interested and we've already covered reuse <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Those lanterns, the wire frames, scrap them. Scrap them. And listen to our uh, podcast about scrapping from the week before. Yeah. It'll tell you how to do that. Thank you for all that detail. That must have taken a lot of time to research. It did, but it was fun. Yeah. I can't believe they gave her back to her mom. I it, it's And my version is a paragraph. Mm -hmm. Jeannie's story stretches at least six pages on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. It is unbelievable and very sad, and I'm just happy she's okay, and she's in a home that people are taking care of her. Yeah. Well, Jeannie's dad actually, after she was found, there was a big media circus around it, apparently because it was so appalling, that he killed himself right afterwards. Womp womp. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a oh, horrendous story. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. Feel free to uh, go to wheredoesitpodcast.com. We've got our social media and all of our episodes each have their own page. Yeah, so that's where it goes. Balloons and feral children. <laughs> did you ever figure out how many balloons it would take to tie to I did get not, me in there? I did not. If anyone knows how many balloons it takes to lift the average human, yeah. we would love to know. I wait. Average human weight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a lot of balloons. I, I don't know. It would probably have to be latex balloons because they contain more helium. Oh, okay. I was like, mylar balloons would be pretty kick butt. They'd be festive. Yeah. Don't go anywhere near power lines. <laughs> That's true. It's like that movie Danny Deck Chair. 
I don't know that movie at all. He tied all these balloons to his deck chair and would just like fly around and have adventures in his deck chair. Is my understanding of it. <laughs> <laughs> it was based on a true story in Australia. Wow. <laughs> That's really interesting. So I'm imagining mylar balloons in aluminum deck chair. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that would be Kentucky Fried Sarah. Don't do it. <laughs> I'm not going to. Good. Nobody else do it either. I was born in Kentucky. Really? <laughs> Kentucky Fried Sarah. I had no idea you were born in Kentucky. <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. <laughs> <laughs>